notice what Paul says here right off the bat. Therefore, since we have this ministry. Now, that word, therefore, of course, is a very important word. It's a, it's a transitional word. It's a, it's a connecting word. Whenever you see that word, you need to ask yourself, what is it? Therefore, exactly. And so what this does for us is it, is it kind of reminds us of what's been said because it has weight in what is now going to be said moving ahead. So Paul's connecting this. Now, what has been said in chapter three, last week we went through chapter three. What were some of the things that we were looking at or some of the uh, you know, comparisons that were being made? Well, first of all, we looked at the, who remembers? Old covenant versus what? There you go, awesome. That was very good of you guys. Old covenant versus the new covenant. That's what we looked at. So he says you're there for now, since we have this, ministry. Now, what kind of ministry does that mean? Well, what was the old covenant? What, what was kind of distinctive about the old covenant? Chapter three, verse six will tell us. What did the old covenant bring us? What did it bring us? Death. I was trying to spell it out for you, trying to hint for you. Whereas the new covenant gave us life. There you go. So chapter three, verse six who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter. And he's using that term to reference the law, the old covenant for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So Paul now identifies these things. Therefore, since we've discussed the old covenant versus the new covenant, therefore now, since we have this, ministry, and I want you to focus on that, this ministry, Paul's revealing now that his life has been uh, given over to ministering this good news now. And it's the good news of this new covenant. He gets to lead people into the glory of the new covenant. He gets to lift the burden off of people from trying to carry now the weight of following the law, living up to this kind of legal standard that we recognize, as Romans 3.23 says, we all fall short of. We never do it. We never can earn our way, make our way through the law. The law brought death. So Paul now goes on to say, we get to lift people out from that place of trying to carry this weight to bring them into the freedom and the liberty we have now in Jesus Christ because it's through the new covenant, more so the work that Jesus did for us when he came to this world by which we now have life. We're freed from that yoke of bondage. Remember the, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council as they're discussing, what do we need for Jewish you know, people that come into Christianity? What do we need to tell them to exercise? They, they said, certainly don't try to put this yoke of bondage of, of carrying out the law because they said not even our fathers could keep that. Nobody's been able to keep that yoke of bondage. Just, you know, let's not bring them under the weight of that law. And so Paul now begins to share with people all that we have now in Christ. Now, let me remind you guys, we talked about this last week, the law isn't bad. You don't need to go through your Bibles and start ripping out, you know, Exodus 20, the old, you know, the 10 commandments. Don't be saying like, oh man, this is, this is bad stuff. No, we don't fall, this is deadly stuff. Don't touch that. We don't look at the law as though it's bad. The law is good. The law is good, only that the law could not save us. The law could not bring us into a right standard of God and his righteousness. We can never earn our way through the law. So that's all Paul is saying. It brings death. In fact, he will say in Romans chapter three, 
verse 20, he says this, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what did the law do? The law revealed this knowledge of sin. That's what the law was for, was to make us realize, you bad, you a sinner, you need help. And the law can't provide that help. The law points to the one that does, ultimately leading us to Jesus, right? And so we see there, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. It comes in and through Jesus. It's not Jesus and the law. It's not the law and, you know, doing all these things. It's apart from the law, that righteousness is now through Jesus. So Paul, you see, understand this, Paul gets to travel now through the world and share this good news. As he's making the rounds and going from place to place, he gets to let people know, man, there is something that we have now in and through Jesus Christ. He has his ministry now by, he, by which he gets to go with his, it's like he's going into a town that's, Never ever, it'd be like going to town that you've has never seen indoor plumbing and you get to tell them there's a better way guys to do this, right? That's kind of what Paul gets to do with the gospel. Terrible analogy, I understand, just bypass that. But you get the idea that he's going in with something that for people is like, what? We don't have to try to live by the standard of the law that we struggle with daily, but which only adds to our guilt. You mean there's a better way? Yes, there's a new and living way through Jesus Christ. And Paul has that ministry now. And notice this ministry, this is great, because it's a ministry by which we have received mercy. Think about that for a second. This is why this is so wonderful, because we're no longer striving to earn our way or our righteousness. We never get there if, if salvation is based on our works. We can never do enough to earn a right standing with God. We can't do it. We need a God to provide mercy and grace. We need God to overlook our sin. Only our sin can't just be overlooked. Our sin needs to be dealt with, right? Our sin needs to be judged. But that's exactly what God did. God provided a way for all that to happen. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this world as perfectly God, but fully man, able to represent humanity. And he died on a cross to pay that judgment for our sin. We deserved it. We deserved to have to pay that penalty for our sin because the wages or the cost of sin is death, Romans 6, 23 tells us. So we deserve that, but here's what God did. I'm gonna reveal mercy. I'm gonna show mercy. I'm going to let that sin be judged, but spare you in the process. And I'm gonna cause my son to take that death blow in your place so that you can be spared and be given mercy instead. So much so, I love this word, Ephesians now, chapter two, verse four to five says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now grace is getting what we don't deserve. God's freely given us his salvation and eternal life, praise the Lord for that. But mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve death and hell because we were all rotten sinners. 
we're, we're actually really good sinners. We did that really well. But because of our sin, we deserve death and hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way for us to be spared from that. So that Paul now can come along in this, in this text here and say, notice this, since we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul goes, I, I'm encouraged by what God's done. We're, we're no longer lying awake at night wondering, have I done enough today? If God, if Jesus were to come back tonight, would I make it to heaven? Have I done enough? If it's based upon your effort and your works, as many people fall prey to because of religion, so many people have been so ingrained with religion that even after hearing the gospel, they still kind of think, I've got to contribute. And if you're relying upon your works, you're lying awake at night going, have I done enough today? If Jesus were to come back tonight, am I gonna make it? Am I gonna receive that salvation? See, if it's based on you, you'll never be free of guilt. You'll never have enough assurance if you think salvation is something that you need to earn. No, we've been made alive by God's mercy, who is rich in mercy. When asked the reason for his wealth, a millionaire's reported have said, as a young man, when I was first married, I was dirt poor. Those were tough times, but being energetic, I took my last nickel and I bought an apple. I spent the night polishing it up until it became so shiny that it was indeed a thing of beauty. The next day, I sold it on the street corner for a dime. And I took that dime and then I went and bought two apples, which I again laboriously polished up until that was shining. The next day, I sold those two apples for 20 cents. I took the 20 cents and bought four apples, which I polished and sold for 40 cents. I took those 40 cents, bought eight apples, and went on this way until I reached $1.60. And you kept doing that until you became a millionaire? No, nope, my wife's dad died and left us a million dollars. But you see, that's just like us oftentimes, isn't it? We think I'm rich in the things of God because of my fasting and my prayer, my devotion life, the, the sacrifice I'm making and all we're doing is just sitting there trying to polish up apples when in reality, we're only rich because Jesus died and opened the floodgates of his grace and mercy to forgive us of our sin. It's all through Jesus. It's all by what he's done. So Paul says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. It's not about you. You're in because you are in Christ Jesus. You make it into heaven simply because you are in Christ Jesus, because your faith is based on his work done for you, because you received his forgiveness of sins. And when you know that, you don't lose heart, no matter what comes your way, you don't lose heart. And this would have been huge for Paul, even just in the ministry that he now has, in ministering that this gospel of Jesus Christ is this work in the new covenant because he's faced trials. He's gone through persecution. I mean, he's had people after him. This whole letter, he's kind of writing much about uh, the opposition coming against him and, and seeking to defend himself. But Paul can now go, I don't lose heart because God is with me. I'm simply preaching the good news of Jesus Christ that doesn't change. He didn't have to lose heart even when he went through attacks and trials. This ministry was too great to ever give up on. 
Ephesians 3.13 says, therefore I ask, Paul writing this, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. Paul says, don't lose heart at my tribulations because this is working out a greater glory in the good news being brought to many. Paul says, I don't lose heart no matter what I face because it allows all the more for this message, this good news of Jesus Christ to go forth. May we never flirt with losing heart because the gospel is too valuable and Jesus too awesome to ever begin to question forging ahead and moving forward in the greatness of what Jesus has already accomplished for us. Amen? Amen. Don't lose heart. Verse two, Paul goes on to say, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Paul, and he's using the word we a lot. He's talking about the other true apostles that he'd often you know, been co-laborers with in the ministry. He says, we, we do not uh, lose heart. And he says, we've renounced the hidden things of shame. The hidden things of shame, he's renounced them. He's rejected them. He's turned away. He's not, he's not looking at any kind of you know, trickery or, or scheming in and through the gospel. That's what he means by the things of shame. It's dishonest or disgraceful kind of practices. He's rejected anything that is not true and honorable before God. That's what he's saying here. I'm turning aside. I'm, 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 I'm rejecting all those things that don't bring honor to God. Now, what were some of those things, those hidden things of shame? As Paul describes, it was those who walked in craftiness and those that used the word of God deceitfully. Craftiness here, handling the word of God deceitfully. Paul says, we're not doing that. We're not about that. There were many people in this day that would come along as these apostles or evangelists and they'd come into town, but they would simply hold up the word of God as a means for their own personal gain. They're very crafty, very sly in how they conduct themselves. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17 says, we're not as so many peddling the word of God, but as the sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. In other words, he's not that word, you know, peddling kind of had the idea of, of a huckster, right? They're not trying to use the word of God for personal gain. <clears throat> That's what Paul is saying here. We've disowned that. We've, we've turned aside from those things. Not that he ever was a part of it, but he says, we reject those kinds of practices. And there were those in Paul's day that were doing just that. They were using the word of God as a means for their own crowd benefit. And, and there are people today, sadly, that continue on in the practice of simply using the word of God for their own personal gain. You think about, you know, the word faith movement or, or the prosperity gospel. Maybe some of you have never heard those terms and I'm glad you haven't. But be aware that there are those out there that try to use the word of God and they twist scriptures around to make it sound like, I mean, they'll use terms like, you know, uh, God wants to be people of faith. And in order to be people of faith, well, you need to show how you're willing to step on faith by giving, you know, you need to give and, and they'll call it seed money. You got to plant that seed money. It's like that money is like a seed that when you plant in the ground and you step out in faith to give that money, you're going to see 
uh, crop just begin to grow and you're gonna be so blessed that you're gonna become just wealthy. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be wealthy. And they'll twist scriptures around to make it sound like that's exactly what the word says, but that's not what the word says. God's never promised us to be wealthy. And I'll tell you, I spent hours and hours looking, hoping that it's somewhere in here. I've been trying diligently and I still have not found it. God's never promised us that we're gonna have great wealth as followers of Christ or that we're gonna walk in perpetual health as followers of Christ. In fact, the word says that it's oftentimes quite the opposite, but we realize that we have everything we need in Jesus. We're already rich in Christ. We have the reward and the promise of eternal life. That's all I need. That's the, that's the, the greatest you know, retirement plan anybody can have right there. But people will twist it around and they'll say, you know, <clears throat> you gotta plant that seed. Once you plant that seed, you're gonna see a great, you know, return on that. And of course, you know, you need somebody to kind of maybe give that to. And so they're all the more happy to say, you know, I'll be happy to be that person that you send that money to, but don't do it for me, do it for you. Send that money and you'll see that reward just come. Meanwhile, they're profiting off of the word of God or this false gospel that they're preaching. This goes on all the time today. There's some strange and aberrant teachings out there that are very crafty. They can sound biblical, but they're far from biblical. I love, I love Andrew on your show. If you haven't seen In Doubt yet, check out In Doubt on YouTube. Andrew Marcus is doing that. And you do a segment. Do you do it every show, The Dangerous Doctrines? Not every show. Not every show, some. They're very cool. Danger, that's fun. That's good. Good job with that. Dangerous Doctrines. So there's a lot out there. Uh, be aware, be on guard, be discerning and make sure it's what the Word of God says and that there's no scriptural gymnastics being done to twist things around to make it fit what some people want it to say. Make sure it's what the Word of God actually says. So Paul, on the other hand, what does he do? He comes along and he says, but by, middle of verse two, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, we reject all this kind of trickery, craftiness, and, and deceitfulness. And we now, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God here. So what Paul is saying is, we wanna manifest the truth, right? Manifestation of the truth, right there. Manifestation of the truth. How did Paul do that? Well, first of all, by the gospel that he spoke, it was the true word of Jesus Christ. It was the message of Jesus and what he's done. So he speaks it on truth, but he also lived it out in truth. He's like, just watch my life. I, I'm manifesting the truth in what I'm saying and in how I'm living it out. Are we those that are manifesting this truth, the way, promoting Jesus Christ by what we not only say, but by how we live? Does our lives match up with what we are, are saying? Do you say one thing, but communicate the opposite by how you live? Even though Paul was oftentimes criticized by by these false apostles, he knew that people's conscience now, that this kind of moral sort of compass that, that's ingrained in us by God, this conscience, people wouldn't be able to say, man, Paul, you're way off. They would look at his life and be able to say, I can't, I can't be critical. I can't deny what you're saying or what you're doing. It's lining up with, my, my conscience is not, you know, struggling here. 
what you're saying and what you're promoting is, is true. It showed that Paul was a person of integrity. And Paul recognized that everything that he's doing, I love that here, it's not only to every man's conscience, but it's in the sight of God so that Paul could say here, everything I do, I recognize I'm doing it in the sight of God. And that, imagine how we would live our lives differently if we truly lived with that understanding that everything I do is laid bare before God, that he sees all. Not only does he see all, but he knows all. He knows my very thought and the very motives of my heart for what I'm doing. There's nothing I can hide before God. Like these people here, these false apostles that are coming in and they're, they're using things, uh, uh, hidden things of shame, Paul says. Paul says, there's, no, there's nothing I can hide before God. I'm an, I'm an open book. I can maybe, people can pull the wool over the eyes of other people, but we can never pull the wool over God's eyes. God's never sitting there going, oh man, you really had me going there. You, you really fooled me. I didn't realize that you're actually doing that. I would have struck you down long ago. Nobody's pulling the wool over God's eyes. And Paul recognizes that. Think about that. Do we live our lives in that kind of manner, recognizing all that we do, every thought, every motive of our heart? God sees, God knows. Am I, am I living with that, that understanding before him? Because I think it would change ultimately the things that we do and say when we recognize it's all laid bare in the sight of God. Now, Paul goes on to say here in verse three, notice this. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So even though now the, the gospel is being delivered by Paul in truth, manifesting of the truth, he says, even though it's being delivered by Paul in truth, we read here that not everyone is gonna receive it. And there's a reason for that. Notice this, it says that the God of this age has blinded them. The gospel becomes veiled to such people. It's not because Paul's uh, delivery was off. It's not that Paul has to sit back and go, hmm, maybe I should change my, my methods, my, my ways here. Maybe people aren't getting, maybe I should change the message a little bit. You know, a lot of, people attempt to do that in, in church today, where they go, man, we're, we're just maybe not seeing the, the people coming out like we want to see at church. Maybe we should change things up a bit here. Got to fix things, maybe better lights. Maybe we need a smoke machine in worship. I don't know, we got to try some new things. Maybe we need to water down. Maybe we're going too hard on the Bible. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to kind of make things a little bit more palatable for people. And we can kind of water things down when Paul says, no, no, it's not, it's not me having to rethink what I'm speaking forth. It's recognizing that there's a God of this age who's blinding people and the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, to those people that don't wanna receive it. Now, first of all, let's look at who the God of this age is. The God of this age is the devil. This is speaking of Satan. Now you might go, wait a second, God of this age, I thought Jesus was, you know, the ruler, the Lord of all. He's the king. What do you mean? The devil is the God of this age. How does he have control over these things? Well, understand something, his, his control is limited. 
But when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, it was as though he handed over the race to the, this world. So the title deed of the earth was handed over to Satan. In fact, even when Satan was tempting Jesus in Matthew 4, remember, he comes and says, I will you know, show them all the kings of the world. He said, all these can be yours if you bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't oppose Satan on that. Wait, Jesus didn't go, hold on a second. They're already mine. Give me something better here than that, right? Jesus didn't oppose or, or contradict Satan. Satan is, the, in fact, Jesus in John 12, verse 31 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. Jesus himself called Satan the ruler of this world. Satan is at work operating this world to blind people from receiving the truth. He's at work in this world as the God of this age. Now, Revelation 5 talks about um, this scroll and nobody had the right to open the scroll until the lamb, Jesus, appears and he begins to open up this scroll, which I believe is speaking of that title deed to the earth. When Jesus lays claim to that which is rightfully his, Jesus has redeemed the world. He's already done the work. It's all rightfully his. He is ruling and, and, and reigning over all, but right now Satan is at work and allowed to do his work, but only allowed to do what God allows him to do. But there's coming a time when Jesus is gonna take back what is already his and rightfully his, and he lays claim to that scroll in Revelation 5, and he opens it up, and the seals are released, which now, during the tribulation period, are these judgments coming against the world. But that's a whole nother study that I need to stop right now, because I'll get going on this for a lot longer if you want me to, but we won't. We'll keep going with our text here. So Satan is blinding people, but he's keeping people in the dark who are, are perishing. He does that through distorting the truth, causing you to question the truth. Now this blindness is not something that happens against your will. It's not that Satan is stopping people from being saved or keeping people from being saved. Rather, they're perishing because they've simply given themselves over to the wicked one. They've had every chance to see the light, but they've rejected the light and they'd rather walk in darkness. And Satan does all he can to keep them now in that state of darkness. That's exactly what we read in John chapter uh, three, verse 19 to 21 saying, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So again, how does Satan blind people? Notice it's through the mind, right? Verse four, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. Just like we read in John three, they reject it. The light is always shining, the light is there, but they rejected it. They would rather remain in the darkness and Satan is right there to feed them. The mind becomes that, that playground of Satan. This is where the battles are fought. And Satan will come in and try to discourage you, try to dissuade you, try to distort the truth. He'll do that for those that are perishing to keep them in the dark, to make them think that the darkness is where they really wanna be. But he will also seek to have entrance into the mind with believers too, bringing thoughts of doubt, making you question, is God real? 
evolution. You'd think by now, people would be waking up to the foolishness of evolution. And people would be like going, man, I know that started in a time way back when, you know, we all got fed that, but come on, evolution. <laughs> but now it's like, we're hearing this kind of stuff being some, somewhat taught in churches. Pastors starting to kind of lean towards a theistic evolution, discounting, you know, just the simple creation by God. And so he'll put thoughts into people's minds thinking, oh, God's not real, come on. This didn't all happen because God said, oh, this is all you know, over billions of years, you know, random chance. No, no, not random chance. No, that's, that's really Father Satan's not, not, not dumb to think it's just all random chance. He's gonna tell you something else that's a little bit more believable, right? That was a bit of a joke, guys, but okay, went over your heads. <laughs> But that's what they say, random chance. Like, pssst. come on. He'll, he'll bring thoughts to your mind thinking, oh, God doesn't love you. God doesn't love you. Look at all that you've had to experience. You know, look at all the difficulties and the tragedies, the trials you've had to encounter. If there was a God, surely he wouldn't let that happen. He'll make you think that God can't save you. Maybe if you believe there's a God, he'll make you doubt again in your mind through that condemnation and guilt that so many people face. He'll play in your mind to th make you think, God can't save you. No, you, you've done too much. You crossed that line one too many times. God can't forgive you. He plays with that mind to bring condemnation and make you, make you doubt you can be saved, to make you doubt God loves you, to make you doubt that God is real. Don't listen to the enemy. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse five, we'll get there at a future time. He says, taking every thought captivity unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. Every time there's a thought that comes in that's distorted, that doesn't seem to be in line with scripture, you have to go, that's not of God. And I gotta take that thought captive. I'm not gonna entertain it. I'm not gonna let it play itself out. I'm gonna guard my mind. I'm gonna take that a prisoner and go, is this right with the word of God? Does this line up? No, it doesn't. Then that's not a God. If it's not a God, then it's gotta be of the enemy and I'm not gonna listen to that. Take every thought captive. Because the God of this age is seeking to blind and he's doing so through the minds of people bringing falsehoods into their mind. Guard your heart, guard your mind in those things. Now, let me continue on in verse five here. Paul goes on to say, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So because of this glorious gospel now and the greatness of Jesus Christ here, Paul says, I've got nothing else to preach other than Jesus. Paul's not seeking to promote himself in any way. I like what, what uh, W. McDonald said in his commentary. He said, in this one verse, we have both the poorest theme for a preacher and the best theme. The poorest theme, theme is ourselves, while the best theme is Christ Jesus the Lord. May we be careful never to inject ourselves into the story of salvation or, or to inject ourselves as the hero of our gospel story. The hero is only and always Jesus. He's the one that we preach. 
It's not us and how we have gone through all this stuff and we just seem to come to know the truth and we got right and now we're just doing awesome. Let's be careful that we're not the hero. It's Jesus. He's when Paul says, we do not promote ourselves. We do not lift up ourselves. We simply want to come and we preach Christ Jesus, the Lord. And notice what he says about himself. He says, us, however, we, we've just become bondservants. Bondservants of you and for Jesus Christ. Paul says, we just come simply to serve. And not just to serve, he says we're bondservants. It's the Greek word doulos, which meant like the lowest slave possible. Because you see, we can kind of, in a sanitized, sanctified way, use that term servant as like just such a, a great thing. Oh, I'm just, I'm just here to serve. Just here to serve you. Just want to serve the church. And we present that in a way that sounds so like, wow, you're really awesome. To where we're kind of puffing ourselves up sometimes. Hey, can I get you coffee? Yeah, I'm just here to serve you, brother. Just here to, to bless you, sister. Just serving. And we can act like this is so wonderful. And people are like, wow, that person's really awesome. Where we're kind of promoting ourselves. But how do you respond when somebody starts to treat you like a slave? Do you still have that same sanctified servanthood smile on your face? Are you still like, yeah, I'm just, or are you walk around like going, how dare they treat me like that? Don't they know I'm just trying to serve and look at them treat me like that? Paul says, we're a bond servant. We've laid our life down to where we're nothing. We're not promoting ourselves in any way. We've taken the place of a lowest, the lowest position for the sake of the people he's preaching to, but to the glory of Jesus Christ as well. And Paul's kind of hinting at the way these false apostles were acting because they wanted to be served and enslave the Corinthian believers under the guise of ministry. Paul says, that's not our heart. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it's the God who commanded light, verse six, to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul takes us right back here to Genesis one, to this scene of creation where we see God giving his very first command, the very first recorded words of God were Genesis 1-3 saying, let there be light. The very first thing God did was say, we're, we're getting rid of the darkness. We're bringing light. And the same God active in bringing forth light out of darkness at the very beginning of time is the same God now who's shining forth in our hearts, bringing forth the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. See, those who have been blinded miss out from seeing the greatness of God and, and the reality of the beauty of Jesus. They think, I'm better off staying in this place of darkness. They think, I'm gonna have more fun. I'm gonna be able to do what I want. But they're missing out on the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Again, Paul says, chapter three, Old Covenant, glorious, but we're moving from glory to glory. The people in darkness haven't even entered into this realm of what glory really is even all about. But when we behold Jesus, and when we see Jesus, we begin to see the greatness of God, the glory of God, and it begins to change us. 
it begins to, to transform us. Paul, Paul, I would think in verse six here is kind of looking back on his own experience. Remember on the road to Damascus where he's looking to persecute the church. He's looking to take Christians down. And it's there on the road to Damascus that Jesus met him, knocked him off. And it says in Acts 9, 3, that this light just shone around them, this radiance of the glory in the face of Jesus. And then when Paul goes on to Damascus, he's blinded from this light. He goes on to Damascus where Ananias is being told to wait for Paul and pray for him. Ananias prays for him and says that great like scales fell off of Paul's eyes. He was once blinded by the God of this age. And now the scales have been removed and he's seen the glory of Jesus Christ. And now what's Paul designed to do? He wants to pass this on to others. He says that God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's heart now is to continue to pass this on to others, to give that same light that which he's received that's transformed his life, Jesus Christ, and now to pass that on to others. And Paul was able to do this so effectively because he knew himself, he was so radically saved and changed. And that's the purpose, isn't it? Of what we receive in and through Jesus. It's meant to be passed on and we can only pass on that which we ourselves have received in and through Jesus. Are you looking into the face of Jesus and seeing the magnificent glory of God radiating from our beautiful Savior? Are you spending time just receiving from him and looking to him so that your life continues to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ so that you yourself can now pass that on to others? Cruz said, we can only preach to others the Christ we have met for ourselves. Our goal as Christians is to point to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We aren't gonna be able to do that if we're trying to shine the light on ourselves as we so sadly oftentimes do. Self-promotion dampens the light, but promoting Jesus shines forth that glorious, life-changing light of Jesus Christ. May we be looking unto Jesus and beholding his glory. May we shine forth that glory for others to now behold and come into the light of Jesus Christ. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. Let's behold Jesus today. Team, would you come up and lead us in a closing song and we're gonna move in a time of communion here this morning and again this is opportunity for us not to practice some tradition or ritual ushers you can come and begin to hand out the emblems of communion this is a time for us here to look to Jesus and remember it's only through Jesus by which I have life by which I have reason to come and and worship him and live so joyfully without losing heart because of what he's accomplished for me and these emblems of communion, the bread representing the body that was broken on the cross, the juice representing the blood that was poured out for us. Sacrifice had to be made for sins to be forgiven and Jesus became our full and final sacrifice. And we partake of this with joy and gladness because those that are in Christ know that we're in simply because we're in Christ. He's done it all for us. 
And so I want you to hold on to these emblems. We're gonna sing and we're gonna partake of these together after this song. But let's take time just to meditate on and think about Jesus, to look into the beauty of who he is and what he's done for us here today. sin, death, the grave, and you are alive today, Jesus. And we have the hope of eternal life, the assurance of life with you for eternity. So Lord, we do not lose heart, but we come today with thankful hearts because of what you've done. 
because what you have accomplished for us out of your great love for us. So we thank you, Jesus. We praise you here today. It says in Matthew's gospel, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broken, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, and this is my body. Let's partake of the bread together. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. Notice this, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Things are gonna be different after this because of what Jesus did. This is the blood of my new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of the cup together. So Jesus, again, we thank you that you gave your life so willingly and freely so that we could have life in you. Lord, may we truly be grounded and settled in you, that our faith is so rock solid in what you've done for us, that we're not depending on anything else but you. We're not lifting up or promoting anything else but you and that we'd continue on without losing heart because we know one day we're gonna partake of this with you anew in our Father's kingdom. What a day that's gonna be. So we keep our eyes on you, beholding your glory, Jesus. And may we shine that forth for others to see and behold and point them to you, Jesus. Go with us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.